Welcome to the President's Career Podcast. The PCP is a podcast brought to you by WNJ's Office of Career Services and is meant to help spotlight everything related to your career. This episode will be part two of the grad school panel. Let's start talking about the personal statement. I know all three of you will have um, some thoughts on that. Who wants to lead off? First thing to know about the personal statement is it really isn't very personal. Uh, It might be called a statement of intent. It might be a statement of research interest uh, or something like that. What they really don't want is your autobiography since you were five years old. Uh, What they're much more interested in is in most cases will be an intellectual biography of some kind. Uh, what Start at the college level. Don't bother going down to anything you did before college unless it is something absolutely amazing, uh, which very few things will actually be that amazing, to be perfectly honest. Uh, so start at the college level. Uh, talk about uh, why you have chosen this particular school, uh, what about this program is of interest to you. Uh, Are there particular reasons why you chose this school that there's some particular, say, archival material or particular research lab that you're interested in? Uh, What you want to be demonstrating uh, is that you know the knowledge of the field that you're entering, uh, that you understand how to use the vocabulary of the field, that you know what the topics and current issues are in the field. Uh, So you're kind of demonstrating that you're ready to become part of the profession's discourse. So that's my, my opening salvo. Sure. So yeah, I'll kind of tailor my comments in two different directions. For folks who are looking at a research-based PhD program, your personal statement should be about your trajectory through research. And if you don't have, you know, a bunch of summer research experiences, don't panic. Is think about what you've done at WNJ that is unique. And also, I think sometimes WNJ students are a very modest, and b don't realize some of the wonderful experiences they've had that students particularly at larger institutions might not have had. Mm -hmm. So there are uh, laboratory courses that have research-like experiences in them. I mean, even Bio 121 starts off that way. Then as you have a trajectory through the upper level science classes, most of them become more independent and they either have a semester long project or a multi-week project at least. These are all things that you can talk about that give a sense that you understand what research is, which is critical because the single best predictor of success in graduate school is prior experience with research as an undergraduate. It's a better predictor than your GPA or your GRE scores or any of that stuff. So you really want to talk about that. Also remember that uh, communication opportunities are often not as widespread as you might think. So if you've participated in poster sessions, you've written final papers, you've given talks about your work, even if it was just a talk in your class, that's great experience because all that stuff happens in graduate school and the broader scientific community as well. The other thing that I'll mention um, Uh, more related to medical school personal statements. And I always struggle with how to say this and not sound like the world's biggest jerk, but you have to remember that experiences that might have been transformative for you may sound very cliched to somebody on an admissions committee. So for instance, your medical school personal statement cannot start with ever since I was five years old and grandma was sick and the doctors were great I've wanted to be a doctor. There's no doubt that that was important in your life. And I don't mean to minimize that in any way, but you know, A, that's gonna sound like a million other personal statements these folks have read. 
And B, it doesn't say anything about you or your ability or your true motivation to go to medical school. I mean, just because you thought the doctors were good and you admired them doesn't mean that you yourself have the skill set or are a good fit for that field. Um, you know, another thing that I think students sometimes don't realize is you can break the mold a lot. I've had experience where students feel like they have to write chronologically because it makes sense. It's the first thing that comes to you. But sometimes deep in the personal statement is something really amazing, an experience they had that really says something about them and what they can do and their abilities. But if you bury it deep in there, somebody has to get that far <laughs> to what you wrote to see it. Think about leading with that and telling more of a narrative that might break the traditional rules of chronology. Uh, that can be an interesting way to construct a personal statement as well. One of the things that Dr. Truce mentioned earlier that I would just want to spend, think about the skills you're bringing to the table, because part of what the personal statement is about is what are you contributing? And some of that includes, why are you sure this is what you want to do? Because if a graduate program admits you, they're then investing time and energy and sometimes stipends in you. And if you get to the end of the first year and you leave, that's a seat that they could have given to someone else. And so experiences that you've had that reinforce for you that this really is what you wanna do are relevant. Um, they make a difference. So if you have that experience doing bench work in your lab classes in chemistry and you really enjoy it, that's important information. That's a skill because not everybody's gonna enjoy that. Um, and sometimes your skills are, you know, really weird things. <laughs> my, my graduate school advisor, one of the things he was most excited about when we got to the end of the first year of graduate school was that I had not been distressed when our first study totally bombed, didn't come out, no significant results, big problem. And I was fine. And that was great to him because many students would have gotten fundamentally depressed Okay, who knew that was a skill that was important in graduate school? <laughs> Relevant. So think about skills. One of the other things you absolutely positively want to do with a personal statement is have multiple people read it. That may include friends, that definitely includes faculty. You want at least one, maybe even two or three faculty members to take a look at the personal statement to offer you feedback because we have a sense of what those look like, um, what the expectations are on the other end. And so we can offer you suggestions about how to reshape things. Often an outside reader can see themes in a personal statement that may not be evident to you as the person writing it. It's often easier to edit someone else's paper than to edit your own. Mm -hmm. So do get people to look at things. Talking about why you why you think that this particular program is a good fit for you, would it be rude in our personal statement to say that it just came easy, like our brain was just like, it just came so easy for us, a specific topic? So. I myself would not go there because what you will discover when you go to graduate school is that everybody is there because it was easy and it will stop being easy once you get to graduate school. 
you could say something about, you know, I've always enjoyed learning more about this, but I wouldn't, I'm, I'm with Dr. Troost, I wouldn't go with the easy. Some personal statement requests are going to ask you, particularly if it's a PhD program, to indicate faculty that you would be interested in working with. It's okay when you're applying to a graduate program. You don't have to know exactly what kind of research you want to be doing in graduate school um, because you're just coming out of undergraduate. And so no one expects you to know what your dissertation is going to be about. It does happen sometimes. I had a student doing a project with me once who did his PA, his master's thesis and his PhD dissertation about the same topic as his honors project. And he's now a faculty member at a college on the West Coast, still doing research on that topic. But that is not as typical as other things. You do wanna, if, if they're insisting that you tell them about faculty you might wanna work with, you probably wanna mention more than one person you definitely want to make sure that there's more than one person in the program that you're willing to work with, which Professor Leonard mentioned earlier, because faculty move also. You don't know what people are going to be like when you get there and faculty move. And this is going to sound really, really odd, but you also want to double check and make sure that the faculty who you say you want to work with are still alive. <laughs> When I was in graduate school, one of the members of the faculty, Ned Jones, passed away. As graduate students, we got to call other former graduate students to tell them that it had happened. But I was talking to the secretary in the department a couple of years later, and she was saying that they were still getting people applying to the program, saying that the person they most wanted to work with was Ned. That was going to be hard. He'd been dead for a couple of years by then. <laughs> Um, so it sounds really silly, but you do want to make sure that the faculty that you're mentioning are still at that school and that they're still alive. Um, Leslie, do you want to raise your question? Yeah, so I was wondering if you should reach out to faculty that you want to work with. Is that like uncouth or should, is that something you really need to do? People are going to really vary on that. So sometimes it makes sense to reach out to people because particularly if you're talking about a PhD program, there are often, um, you know, people have funding to support a graduate student or they don't. And so they can give you that information and tell you, you know, at the moment I do have money or this year I don't happen to have money. So if you apply to work with me, you probably are not going to get admitted because I don't have money to support a student. There are other faculty and graduate programs. My advisor in graduate school, for example, who would not talk to students who were interested in the program. He just would not do it. Um, it was partially because he was a social psychologist. And so he taught all of the literature about how bad we are at forming impressions of other people. But it was also partially because once he had actually talked to a prospective student for the graduate program, and that student had somehow formed an impression that Joel wanted to admit him to the program. And then the student had gotten rejected from the program and it became a large mess. Mm -hmm. um, and so Joel's solution was never to talk to applicants under any circumstances. It's gonna depend a little bit on the program. And there are some programs which will do a form of not the interview that 
Dr. Leonard was talking about, but uh, okay, we have admitted you to the program and now we're going to have an open house date so you can all come and meet the faculty in the program. And it becomes a way for the faculty to look at you and you to look at the faculty and figure out who you might wanna work with. They can look at who they might wanna work with and you can sort of figure out ahead of time whether the people in that program who wanna work with you are the ones that you wanna work with or whether you have somehow attracted the attention of someone who is doing a kind of research that you have zero interest in doing. There are some campuses that will have um, days for prospective students. I know the Gispia program at Pitt um, it does that. that. You didn't necessarily have to have been an applicant to come and learn more about the program physically in person, although these days it would all be virtual. So mm -hmm. um, Dr. Leonard or Dr. Truce, do you want any more thoughts on that? The only small thing I'd add is that that's very common in chem biophysics world to have these open houses you can go to. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in a COVID era, uh, but if they have them, definitely go to them because they always include a trip to the bar with current graduate students. And the, <laughs> the truth comes out then, as you might imagine. So it's great recon. That is a good point when you get to the point where you're thinking about where to go, sometimes even when you're thinking about where to apply. Programs are often willing to give you the names of graduate, current graduate students who you can talk to. And graduate students will give you the student perspective on a program as opposed to the faculty perspective, which can be a useful thing. They don't always line up perfectly. Sure. So when I was looking at graduate programs, I can remember one in particular where the faculty gave, told me it was X number of years and the graduate school, graduate student estimate was a year longer. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because the faculty had been there for a lot of years. And so their memory went back to when it was very common for it to be that smaller number of years. And it had more recently really become the longer number. And the graduate students knew that because all of them and all of the people they knew that were ahead of them were all on that slightly longer time frame. Mm -hmm. I want to mention um, particularly I've seen it happen for the science students on the call. Um, and this happened in my niece's case. She did a summer REU at Vanderbilt uh, between her junior and senior year, and then um, ultimately went on for her PhD at Vanderbilt. And it was that summer of research that um, helped build her connections with the, the program. Definitely building on that. If you did an REU somewhere, apply there, even if you're not super interested in it, because the REU programs are sophisticated recruiting tools. They will almost certainly accept you if you did a reasonable job during your REU experience. Mm -hmm. What I want to add is that in a number of PhD programs and even master's programs are enormously competitive. This is particularly true in the humanities. So, for example, you can have a uh, 10 slots available in a PhD program each year for a cohort, uh, but there will be 100 to 200 people applying for those 10 slots. And everybody is good, and everybody did an honors thesis, and everybody uh, is in the, uh, in the top of their class, uh, but they're still going to have to pick people. It's going to be, it's almost like roulette sometimes. So if you don't get into a program, it's not really your fault to be perfectly honest in, in a majority of cases. Uh, in many cases, it might be, you might wanna to apply to some master's programs instead of only to straight PhD programs. Uh, but it's a, 
it's going to be in certain fields immensely competitive. Yeah. I was just wondering, since like master's programs don't have much funding and stuff, what is housing going to look like if I'm like at a school outside of my home state? Like, are there vouchers and things that I can look into or? It's going to vary somewhat by school. There are graduate programs that have graduate housing that's sort of like undergraduate housing that, that you can pay to live in um, or and that may or may not be part of your admissions package. Um, there are often places, I have a student advisee from last year who's gone to a master's program in Was the Washington DC area. They don't provide housing, but there's a list of places where graduate students typically go, typically choose to live where the rents are a little more reasonable than they would be for most of DC. So often they can help with, with housing. If they're a pro, it's part of why a lot of those programs are set up on the assumption that you might be working during the day mm -hmm. so that you can in fact do that. Cause that way you have an income to do things like provide you with housing. And and often graduate students find each other and, um, you know, will share, you know, housing. It's also worth asking uh, the department secretary or the program secretary, because mm -hmm. I know at uh, my graduate school, we had about five or six houses in Philadelphia that were the English department graduate houses and about five or six students every year were living in the houses and they would sort of rotate in or out. Uh, so there might be something operating at the department level to also ask about. There, there's also sometimes things at a university level. So for example, I had a friend who was in an English PhD program who had a job that was essentially um, being an RA, but it's mm -hmm. that sort of higher level RA. She was the adult who was around 24 seven and had an apartment within the dorm complex. And so she got housing and meals in exchange for doing that job and being available to students who needed help at odd hours and things. Sure, that's what I wanted to mention. And actually, Mom, thank you for saying it exactly that way. Um, you may want to look into, so, so certainly certain subjects come with funding, like I can't imagine science not funding, um, you know, but um, there are assistantships and those are, as Dr. Bennett described, things like um, running a residence hall, um, at the university I worked at before, we had assistantships that there was somewhat attached to the athletic department. Um, and in exchange for her um, 20 hours a week, making sure athletes were um, NCAA compliant and you know, all sorts of other things that she did as the right arm of the athletic director, um, she got her tuition. Um, there was somebody running the equivalent of the hub, you know, that supervised all the student workers, helped plan some activities, put some time in, um, you know, actually planning events in the hub, or, or I mean, the student center, and their um, education was funded. There, there was an MBA program where there were assistants that um, did research for the MBA faculty, you know, and actually helped advise other MBA students and so on. You know, so they come in all kinds of forms. Um, certainly research in the science would be, you know, probably a part of their um, opportunity. But so you want to uh, ask good questions of the, the programs because that could be some ways to get humanities, support. you will often get a lot of people working as TAs for a yes. professor or especially after the first or second year 
actually teaching their own sections. Right. Um, yeah. In my program, we all funded ourselves and got tuition remission by teaching a section of freshman composition every semester for years and years. Years and years. You're going to feel like an indentured servant. You know, you will not be driving Porsches as grad student you know, funded things. Um, I, I think on some campus, grad students even attempt to unionize it. You know, it, it can be a little unfair, but um, yes, there, there are ways to fund it. And in many, many cases, except medical school, you are now considered independent. So if you have, um, um, if you're hoping to get student loans, I mean, it'd be nice to do it without student loans, but if you are needing student loans, your funding will not need um, parental information. That's not the case with medical school, you know, so anyway, um, but just ask good questions. That was a super question. Any other thoughts on funding though, before we wrap this up? Well, well my word would be that if you're going for a degree in the humanities, don't go to graduate school unless somebody is paying for you or you're getting uh, funding from your university. Uh, the sciences will often have a lot of outside grant money. Uh, that's less common in the humanities unless you're doing digital humanities work, in which case there tends to be outside grant money. But uh, it's, it's not worth going into debt uh, to get a PhD, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I guess the related thing for chem biophysics world would be the difference between master's and PhD, where often you might end up paying for a master's, but a PhD program is not only going to be funded, but also pay you a stipend. So really, going to master's programs is maybe sort of three limited scenarios. You would only be happy going to a super, super top tier graduate school, and you need further preparation to do that. You fumbled your undergraduate career, and you need to kind of make up for that. Uh, or sometimes people get jobs and the jobs allow them to work towards a master's in the evening, as other folks have mentioned. But by and large, people are going to go for the PhD programs because they're actually paying you a living stipend then in addition to waiving your tuition. Yeah, and actually, I finished my master's as an employee of the university um, that I worked at, you know, so I paid nothing. And got employee discounts in the campus uh, bookstore and so on. So it took me a little longer. Um, I was busy, you know, with the full-time job and part-time graduate school, but I also did not go in debt for graduate school. So it can be done. Any other questions, group? I have one more thing that I want to say, which was not on our list, but one of, one of the features of graduate programs is that unlike colleges, when you, you got admitted to college, there was sort of one date by which everybody said you had to make a decision. So it was on a common timetable. You knew what all of your choices were before you had to make a choice. Graduate students do not necessarily work that way. So I have had students where they've heard back from a graduate program, they've been admitted. It's not their first choice school. They're still waiting to hear from their first choice school. And they've called the first choice school and said, do you have any sense of your timeline? Um, and the timelines aren't lining up and then they've got to figure out what they want to do. So there are a number of things that happen that way. And, and the school that does the early admission, it may be because they really want you. And so they really, since they really want you, they're going to try and force you to choose them first. Um, there are also schools, it's become a little more common, I think, now 
if a school has you on their wait list to tell you that you're on the wait list. But I'm going to bet that there are still schools that operate the way they did when I was applying to graduate school, low these many years ago, um, <laughs> where schools, they're looking for fit. So if they decide they want you, they really want you to come and they don't want you to feel like you were a second choice in some fashion. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that happens is sometimes if you're high enough on the wait list, they won't tell you, they just won't send you a letter. So you don't get a letter admitting you, but you don't get a letter rejecting you. You don't get a letter putting you on the wait list because they're waiting to see whether some of the people who they accepted turn down their offer, in which case they can now offer one to a slot to you. And they don't want you to feel like you're a second choice if they decide to make that offer because at that point they really want you. Would a school look bad on you if you applied to both a master's and a PhD program, or do they not really care? You want to check the paperwork for the school, because there are schools, there are some schools that will not allow you to apply to both programs. And there are some schools, if there are two programs that you're interested in within the same school, maybe they have a master's in marriage and family counseling, and they also have a master's in social work. And either one would get you the licensure you want and you'd re you really like the school, so you want to apply to both of them. Some schools will let you apply to both. Some will explicitly prohibit you from applying to more than one graduate program at a time. Dr. Leonard or Dr. Truce, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, Cindy, I'd say that the danger that you run is that um, if you're writing personal statements for both of them, they may call into question how sure you are that you want, for instance, the PhD program. So you might inadvertently endanger your chances in the PhD program by saying, well, I might be all right with this other degree as well. Um, you know, knowing your credentials as I do, I would recommend that you focus on PhD programs unless there's really some compelling reason that a particular master's is appealing to you. It's going to be financially much, much better for you. And if you don't like it, you can always leave with a master's after a couple of years. And a lot of times the deadlines for master's programs are late enough that you can apply to PhD programs, figure out how those are going and whether you're getting in and then make a decision to apply to master's programs. Dr. Troost, any other comments? I'd say that's also, I would say that's pretty much the same in the humanities as well. Aim as high as you can for the highest degree and also the best schools you can possibly apply to because reputation really does kind of matter a lot. Uh, but you also need to be kind of realistic. Uh, but there's, there's always time to, to readjust later. Okay, any last thoughts, panelists? As we I have one, one last comment to make. Okay. Let people in your department and your advisor know that you're thinking about graduate school. 
Uh, junior year is a good time to be starting to have conversations about this. You also want to talk to other people in your department, uh, especially the ones who perhaps might be more recently out of graduate school or the people who are a little bit more uh, professionally active in your department who are a little bit more clued in on, on what the trends are in the field. Uh, but don't keep it a secret from people. <laughs> okay, any other last thoughts, Beth? Yeah, one of the things, going back to something said earlier, and I apologize, I don't remember whether it was Professor Leonard or Professor Truce, but a lot of times when I talk to students here, they don't see themselves as necessarily being unusual or there being anything about them that stands out that would make a graduate program want to accept them. You all have mm -hmm. things, you all have experiences, you all have things about you that would make you an exceptional graduate student. Absolutely. The trick is learning to identify what those are and figuring out how to present them in a way so that the school can see them. And not being humble. Dr. Leonard, any last thoughts? The last thing I'd say is kind of already been alluded to, but just don't operate in a vacuum. You know, don't try and do this on your own. We're all here to help you and provide advice. And we're all happy to do that outside of a formal panel. So let your faculty know and we'll help you through it. This concludes the second episode of the grad school panel.